Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. Our bi-monthly podcasts feature interviews with philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Peter Paul Verbeek about his book, Moralizing Technology, Understanding and Designing the Morality of Things, just out from the University of Chicago Press. Professor Verbeek is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Twente and Extraordinary Professor of Philosophy at Delft University, both in the Netherlands. Guns don't kill people, people do. That's a common refrain from the National Rifle Association, but it expresses a certain view of our relations to the things we make that also affects our thinking about the scope of ethics. On this traditional and very intuitive view, human persons are moral agents and artifacts or products of technology in general are just tools. They have no moral significance in and of themselves. Verbeek argues persuasively that this traditional view is no longer tenable, that we need to understand the moral role of technology as one of active mediation and of ourselves as technologically mediated moral agents. Ultrasound, for example, isn't just a matter of peeking into the womb. The fetus becomes a potential patient. The womb becomes an environment for moral decisions. And the parents become responsible for making new morally relevant decisions. In general, if ought implies can, and if what we can do is expanded and conditioned by technology, then the range and nature of moral decisions and actions must also be expanded and conditioned by technology, and the designing of technology itself can be seen explicitly as having an important moral dimension. In Moralizing Technology, Herveig spells out this new view of the moral relevance and role of artifacts and draws out some of its immediate implications. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, I'm here with uh, Peter Paul Verbeek from the University of Twente and Delft University um, in the Netherlands. Uh, Peter Paul? Hi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us today with New Books yeah. and Philosophy. Thanks. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. <laughs> um, so we'll be talking about your new book, uh, Moralizing Technology, Understanding and Designing the Morality of Things um, from uh, University of Chicago Press. Um, so before we begin with the book itself, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got into philosophy, um, and in particular, um, the areas of philosophy that you got interested in. Yeah, well, actually, it was quite a travel, I can say, because uh, I think when I was at high school, uh, it was quite hard for me to choose between, uh, even between the humanities and the sciences. So I shifted from uh, 
Latin and Greek to astronomy to physics to psychology to Dutch language and literature and it was just uh, anything uh, that had my interest and then uh, at some point I discovered that there was this very interesting program at the University of Twente where I still am uh, which was a combination of technology and philosophy so I started uh, doing a, a bachelor something similar to that in physics. And on top of that, I did uh, a master program in philosophy of technology. And uh, I must say that when I was doing that, I really discovered that my heart was just a bit more with philosophy than with physics. So I decided to stick uh, to that and to do a PhD in philosophy of technology. And uh, yeah, uh, I think what really fascinates uh, me, what what has always fascinated me in that is the interesting combination of, uh, well, deep intellectual engagement and also deep social engagement. So it's a lot of exciting philosophical questions that pop up as soon as you start thinking uh, in terms of technology. It's not just applying philosophical theories to technology, but it's more trying to understand how technology challenges a lot of existing frameworks and how technology urges you to rethink how knowledge comes about if you try to understand the role of scientific instruments in knowledge production or as my book is about uh, if you try to understand what technology does in our moral decision making how technology help us to make moral decisions so that's uh, the more yeah you could say that the part of theory and on the other hand you have this social engagement that thinking about technology is also thinking about a very important force in our culture and uh, well if you succeed as a philosopher in helping engineers and policymakers to well to make technology better I think you can also really contribute to a better society. Well, that was one of the uh, one of the aspects of the book that uh, I do want to get to definitely is the um, the role of designers of technology in in morality which is is not a standard sort of issue that's talked about, but um, I thought that was very interesting how, how there's a certain responsibility for the people who design and make technology that is, hasn't been as acknowledged as, as you believe it ought to be. Um, uh-huh. before, we, before we get into that, um, you begin the book with, um, uh, with an anecdote uh, or you know, a story about um, when you went with your wife to get an ultrasound for a child. Um, yeah. How old? How old is their, your child now? And that child is now nine years old, almost ten. Oh, so okay. Old, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we have four, so we had a lot of ultrasounds after that too. <laughs> okay. um, could you, you know, to uh, to sort of lay the groundwork for the you know deeper exploration of these issues in the in the book? Um, maybe you could tell us that anecdote and all the and the different um, you know morally relevant aspects. Of the of that ultrasound. Okay. Well, the anecdote was uh, as follows: uh, We um, uh, went to the ultrasound examination room. Uh, I think my wife was like ten weeks uh, expecting uh, our our child, and um, uh, well, we were quite hesitant about having the scan done because, of course, we knew that they could also do some kind of antenatal diagnostics, and we were a bit hesitant to be put on the chair of somebody who has to make a decision about the life of your own uh, unborn child, and not that we are very very fundamentalist about this, not at all, but we just felt hesitant about it. And the funny thing was that the first thing we saw was a serigraph, a picture on the wall depicting an owl. Uh, and, well, it was just a coincidence, but we just got, the, well, also a print of that same 
uh, picture, uh, and it was made uh, by an artist who suffered from Down's syndrome. Uh, and that was actually quite reassuring to us because it meant at least that uh, in that practice, ultrasound scans were not made just to make sure that your child doesn't suffer from some kind of congenital disease in order to have an abortion, but it was actually just a way of well, getting in touch with your unborn child uh, without, uh, well, the explicit aim to make sure that uh, nothing was wrong, so to speak. Uh, well, the interesting thing was that, uh, well, we managed to keep the tests at bay, so we only wanted to know about the age of the fetus and not about any disease that it could have. But the funny thing that was that, of course, we still uh, uh, kept a close eye on the looks of the person doing the scan, because even though we did not want to know anything, of course, you're still quite anxious to hear anything and to see if maybe something could be wrong. And that made us also realize that also the choice not to choose was quite an explicit choice and that we had to deal with that somehow. And then I thought, okay, actually, we stumbled upon a very interesting moral dimension of technology here. Now, even when we were not using it for the purpose that it was designed for somehow, it still had a moral impact. It somehow changes or reorganizes your moral decisions about uh, having an abortion or not, and about, uh, well, it, it changes the standards you can have for what is, uh, uh, well, a human uh, life or a dignified human life. And that was interesting for me, because at that very moment in the Netherlands, there was a big discussion going on about the question, uh, to what extent we should maybe moralize our technologies. There was a, well, a, a well-known Dutch thinker, Hans Achterhuis, who just wrote an article about the question if we should maybe stop moralizing each other and start moralizing tech, well, well, all the things that we use. And he said, well, we can uh, try to moralize each other not to shower too long or to turn off the lights in your hallway when you go upstairs. But you could also delegate those tasks to technologies and make sure that they do it for you. Of course, many people were quite hesitant about that, and they felt that actually the morality was with the humans and not with the things. But then I thought, actually, this issue is much more subtle. It's not only about can you delegate a task to a technology that they do the moral work for you. It's much more subtle in the sense that technologies are also in, involved in how we do ethics. And not only by steering our behavior in a direct way, like having a speed bump that makes sure that you don't drive too fast near a school, but having technology that also, well, have an impact on how you think and what kind of moral choices you make. So that was actually, for me, the start of uh, this whole research and this whole book about how technologies are not just doing ethics, but how they help us to do ethics and how to conceptualize it, how to conceptualize this moral significance of technologies, and how to conceptualize the impact this has for moral agency of human beings. So you, you describe um, your experience with the ultrasound um, as... Uh, as it play an actively mediating role in um, uh, not just ultrasound, but of course technology in general, active, actively mediating in our moral interpretations and moral decisions uh, and moral practices. And you, uh, you know, to sort of lay the sort of background philosophical uh, groundwork for that in chapter two, you describe this approach to technology and um, and morality in terms of mediation um, as a post-humanist or non-humanist 
ethical approach um, in which morality isn't just uh, a human affair, but it's a matter of human technology interaction or a human technology association. So if you could just maybe just explain a little bit um, that sort of, you know, backgrounding to your view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, maybe non-humanist is a better term than post-humanist. Uh, what I tried to explain there is that I think that a lot of ethical theory uh, at this time is focusing on humanism in a sense that it's only human beings who can do ethics. It's only human beings who are to praise or to blame for moral actions. It's only human beings who can have moral intentions, who can be morally responsible, etc. Of course, it's quite obvious, and I am also fully aware that you make quite a lot of mess in ethical theory if you start, uh, uh, well... Uh, uh, expanding that view. Still, I think we have to do that because if you uh, ignore the moral role of objects, then you throw out the child with the bathwater. Um, so what I try to do in chapter two is, uh, well, actually a bit metaphysical, but I try to uh, work towards an alternative view of the relations between subject and objects in uh, in ethics, where I uh, try to end up uh, at a view in which it's not just humans who are doing ethics, neither just things. I don't think uh, I, I don't think things are moral agents in themselves. But I try to explain how humans and things together do ethics. How things fundamentally help to shape human experience of the world, human actions. How things are uh, well, very often uh, mediating how human beings have relation to their environment. And one important dimension of this mediation is a moral dimension. As soon as things have an impact on how you interpret the world or how you are inclined to act, then, uh, well, in some way, they help to answer the question of how to act or how to live. And that makes them morally, well, well, it it doesn't make them moral agents, (laughs) but it gives them a form of moral, uh, yeah, uh, I say relevance. Okay, so... um one of the things that I was thinking as I as I read uh, the chapter chapter three, I suppose, um, in which you're contrasting your view with standard accounts of the moral status of objects. Um, one thing that occurred to me was the phrase uh, "guns don't kill people; people do." Which um, you know, people here will in the United States will say in, in terms of defending you know gun rights and yeah. so and forth. Right. And uh, yeah. And um, and that struck me as a um, very clear way of uh, expressing the the presupposition uh, about the role of objects that yeah. that you are arguing against. Um, yeah. And so maybe uh, by using that example, uh, you might flesh out a bit this idea that. Um, uh, the na- the nature of moral agency is different when you're t- when you're including technology in the mix. Yeah, yeah, it's nice that you that you bring this in. Actually, it's an example of Latour, Bruno Latour, who uh, wrote a, well, a rather funny article about uh, the moral agency of things, where he uses the beautiful English word of the gunman. <laughs> to explain how things can have well, a very deep role in moral agency and how morality actually is a hybrid affair. And so he, he plays a bit with this discussion between the NRA and the, the, the anti-gun movement. Eh? 
where of course uh, the anti-gun movement people say, okay, guns kill people, so we shouldn't have guns. And the NRA says, no, it's, it's people who kill people. You cannot blame the guns. And actually, that latter view is much in line, I think, with a lot of uh, viewers in ethical theory who would say that you could never blame a thing for an action, right? It's only the human beings using the thing. But I think Latour quite convincingly shows that, uh, well, a human being with a gun is an entirely different agent than a human being without a gun. That actually the agent who is somehow responsible for the shooting is an assembly of a human and a non-human element. Introducing a gun in a situation changes a lot, changes uh, the intentions that uh, human beings can have from just expressing their anger to killing somebody. Uh, It also changes the properties, you could say, of a gun uh, from something like projecting a missile uh, into killing somebody you know, when it gets somehow connected to the intentions of a human being. So the entities that enter into the various assemblies, uh, well, help to shape each other and also help to shape the actions that come about. And the beautiful thing of the English language is that you then have the word gunman, <laughs> which has this beautiful hybrid uh, of a gun and man in it. And I think that's quite a good expression of what I uh, aim to arrive at in my book. So I don't aim to claim that things are moral agents in themselves. I mean, I, I'm not an animist who thinks that uh, uh, well, things have their own intentions or their own secret lives or something. I, I do believe in human agency, of course, but I do not believe in autonomous human agency. I think that, uh, well, in many cases, uh, in most cases where human beings act, their actions are mediated by things by devices and most often by technological devices that were designed and made by human beings and that well the resulting uh, well uh, ethical dimension of these actions are actually not only human but are somehow distributed over human and non-human elements as is the case when there is a shooting so the responsibility is the man and the gun yeah not, and that's not interesting. just not just the man No, Uh, but of course there is a special responsibility for the human being because human beings can of course also be aware of the uh, mediating effects that things can have on them. But the other interesting thing is that as soon as you include things in moral responsibility, you can also uh, introduce a notion of the moral responsibility of designers. Because um, uh, those things uh, are not just there, but they were designed and made and uh, organized by human beings. So rather than, uh, you could say, uh, taking away from uh, the concept of moral responsibility and by claiming that, well, things have a role too in it, I think you actually add to it because you now also create space for the responsibility of designers in the actions that human beings perform with the help of objects. So uh, a safety on the trigger is is a morally relevant uh, design feature, right? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. um, well, how about designing a weapon uh, in general? I mean, okay, it's one thing to say that we've got, you, you know, um, artifacts that we need to build certain um, certain safety features into, like like you know, with the gun or or toys, right, that have safety features built into them. Um, um, that's that's one way, I guess, suppose, in which designers are, uh, you know, morally res- in, in positions of moral responsibility, actually. Um, but there's also the further issue of 
the moral responsibility of simply building, you know, designing and building any of these things just from the get-go, right? Um, yeah. Do you dis- is it important to distinguish between those two types of moral yeah. responsibility? Well, I think um, uh, one of the lines in the book is that you always have two dimensions of technical artifacts. One is the dimension of its functionality, uh, when the thing just does what it was designed for. And I think that's the level at which you are speaking if you say, well, is it good at all to design a weapon? Uh, you can have a lot of ideas about that. I think I mean I think uh, not too many people would be too enthusiastic about that, even though there are also theories about the just war and etc. But of course, uh, that's one dimension. Uh, uh, so uh, can a weapon in itself be good at all? But the second dimension of things is that as soon as they function, they also reorganize the world in a, in a specific way. On top of their functioning, they shape all kinds of relations between human beings and their world. And that's also where you can see a moral significance. Yeah? So if ultrasound was designed to, uh, well, actually it was not designed for medical purposes at all. It was designed to detect sea mines in, in, in boats. <laughs> but uh, as soon as you introduce it in a medical context and you say that uh, it's now introduced to detect, uh, well, for instance, uh, an indication of Down's syndrome, then you can also say that, well, on top of that, it starts to mediate, it starts to make parents responsible, it, it starts to, to change a lot of things. Huh? Suddenly, the unborn child is translated into a possible patient, huh? and a congenital disease is uh, somehow translated into uh, a disease that uh, can be prevented by having an abortion. And expecting a child is somehow translated into choosing for that child, not only before the conception, which we can do now quite easily, of course, but also after the conception, will we carry on with this pregnancy? So it's two dimensions that you can address for technology, how it functions and how it mediates. And, uh, well, what you say about weapons is, is I think, well, is it good to design an object with a function to kill at all? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, of course, a very interesting and a very important question to, uh, to ask. But I think the main line that I tried to develop in this book is that extra line, that mediation line. So uh, as soon as an object does what it does, uh, it starts to do more. And how could we analyze and understand that? Okay. And how about um, uh, enhancement as opposed to artifacts? In other words, um, technology that's intended to improve us, you know, the agents themselves. I mean, does that have the same kind of treatment uh, for you as a, as a as something that can be put put away someplace else yeah well, I think there uh, you enter into a, a completely different configuration of humans and technology uh-huh. I think uh, if you uh, speak about uh, the morally significant technologies that I address in my book it's most often technologies that are in a configuration of of use as you could call it you can use them and you can put them away or, or, and you can decide to use them or not. But a lot of the human enhancement technologies really embody some kind of a, of a physical uh, boundary blurring between the humans and the, and the technologies. It's, it's, it's about brain implants, about drugs, about uh, engineering of your genome. Right. So that's, um, it's a different configuration. Uh, it's, it's a hybrid as well, <laughs> but not a hybrid in terms of how you think and how you have moral arguments, but really a, a hybrid in, in physical terms. 
But in a sense, I think there are similarities because, um, well, the issue of human enhancement also shows that, uh, well, there is this deep intertwinement between humans and technologies and that it might not be very helpful to, um, to choose an ethical approach in which you uh, feel that the main uh, question to, to answer in ethics is uh, if we should say yes or no to a technology, if, if it's allowed to use it or if it's not allowed to use it. Because yeah. most of the time the technologies are already there and are already doing their mediating work. They have already made us somehow responsible in new ways. Uh, and then the question is more of how to accompany the introduction of these technologies in such a way that their mediating role uh, takes on a good shape. So in the book, in the final chapter, uh, chapter eight of the book, I try to call that an ethics of technology accompaniment rather than technology now you could say assessment and not standing outside of the technologies and trying to, to give an assessment about uh, the question if it's good or bad, but try to well, to move along with it and try to understand what's at stake, how it changes things, how it mediates things in order to be able to feed that back into the design, maybe to change the technologies or to change the social in, uh, well, the, the ways in which it's introduced in society or to equip users with uh, uh, well, the means to understand what's at stake when they use these technologies in order to help them to shape their lives in a productive and in a good way in interaction with these mediations. So, so it's a different model of doing ethics. Right, right. Um, so the, the mediating role um, uh, or the mediated subject, as you, as you also call us now, um, maybe you could just be a little bit more specific about exactly this, you know, good examples of the kinds of mediation that you, that you mean. Yeah, well, um, if you put it in broad lines, uh, uh, in the book I try to distinguish between two uh, spheres of mediation, uh, which are both actually emphasizing one dimension of this human-world relation where technologies play a role. So it's the sphere of, of action and of uh, well, the, the way in which we live our lives on the one hand. On the other hand, it's the sphere of uh, human experience, human perception, interpretations of the world. So I think the ultrasound example is mostly on the line of experience and, and interpretation. And ultrasound helps uh, actually uh, the fetus to be there in a new way. It, it, it constitutes for us in a new way what a fetus is. And it actually also reconstitutes us as people who are expecting a child. On the other hand, you have te technology that have maybe a bit more direct impact on how we behave. Uh, ranging from the obvious examples of speed bumps to also a bit less yeah, you could direct uh, uh, technologies like technologies that can somehow persuade us to behave in specific ways or, uh, well, give us feedback on our behavior. And that also works uh, through our perception and our interpretation, so to speak, but not in this direct uh, way as ultrasound works and that you really get a different well, kind of representation of what your fetus is, but more by giving feedback to you on how you act. You mean like uh, a seatbelt, um, you know, buzzer or something, that yeah, kind of a thing? Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's all the, well, the very uh, mundane examples that Latour gives. Eh? So, uh, indeed, there is the safety belt, uh, 
warning that you can get in your car that, that gives a beep or that even somehow refuses to start the engine if you don't wear your safety belt. There's also this uh, a very well-known example of like the winner of the, the low-hanging overpasses over the parkways on Long Island to the beach that were built so low that only cars can pass uh, there and no buses, uh, which in the times that they were built made sure that only people who could afford a car could uh, go to the beach, which in those days were uh, white people and not the African-American people. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of interesting examples of how technological devices can actually, well, uh, uh, embody some form of morality. At the same time, uh, though, um, well, these examples also show that there are very different ways in which technologies can have this moral significance, so to speak. And because um, if you think about the low-hanging overpasses, you could say, well, in a sense... Uh, the central uh, aspect of its moral significance is not in the things themselves there, but it's, it's in the ideas of their architect. It's Moses, and the, 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 the man who designed the overpasses, who uh, well, uh, was well known for his racist ideas and who tried to install his racist ide- ideology in those overpasses. On the other hand, you, you have people who do not put all the morality in the humans, but who put all the morality in the things. And people who claim that actually a computer can be a moral agent, that a computer can be capable of, uh, well, making a good moral decision. Then it's not in the in the humans, but it's in the in the technologies that all the all the ethics is to be found. I, I well, thought you ruled that out. Yeah, I, <laughs> that, I thought that wasn't you. No. Okay. No. Well, I mean, what I try to claim in my book is uh, that, uh, well, it's somewhere between, <laughs> well, or, or somewhere beyond this opposition, so to speak. That, right. So it, it's, it's always uh, in this uh, mix of humans and non-humans, of humans and technology that ethics comes about. So um, are, are engineers somehow more morally responsible than the rest of us? Because since they are the ones who are creating and designing I wouldn't call it more, but differently. (laughs) I think uh, there are many points of application for ethical reflection if you look at technologies. So uh, there is a specific responsibility for engineers and designers, just like there is a specific responsibility for policymakers and a specific responsibility for users. I think uh, many groups in society help to shape the impacts of technologies on our daily lives. And designers, of course, have a very special role there because they are the ones who, uh, well, help to shape the physical properties of those technologies. It doesn't mean, though, that they have the final say. I mean, there are many examples of technologies who were designed for entirely different purposes than what they uh, ended up to be used for. And one of the most well-known examples maybe here is the energy-saving light bulbs, which, uh, especially in the in a European context that I know, have often been shown to uh, make people use more energy rather than than less, and because people feel that it's so cheap to well to lighten their garden or the facade of their houses or whatever that they uh, decide to to leave the lights on uh, all day, and uh, well they end up using more energy because they think that it's so cheap. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's just well to to to, to make sure that uh, the engineers are not uh, completely in charge, but still. Uh, they help to shape what technologies do. And uh, part of what I try to accomplish with this book is to equip 
designers with a vocabulary to anticipate those mediating effects of technologies so that they don't just feel that they are designing a functional thing eh, which is supposed to fulfill a specific function uh, in society but that they understand that as soon as it starts to have that function, it will also reorganize people's lives. It will shape new relations between users and their environment. And it will also then change people's interpretations of the world, uh, people's patterns of action. And, and therefore, it will also have some kind of moral load, moral uh, charge, so to speak. So um, you you call uh, their role at this point as involving a kind of Im- implicit moral decision making and and advocate making this um, this implicit decision making more explicit yeah um, and I was just wondering if you could say a word about you know what what you have in mind by making it explicit well um uh, you can do that in various ways. Uh, uh, well, maybe uh, a very good example of uh, what I'm working on at this moment is that with a PhD student, uh, we are involved in a project uh, which is also sponsored by big companies like Philips, uh, uh, which is about usability. And that's a buzzword in the design uh, uh, circles. It's about making products better usable, not only functional, but also understandable for for human beings. And what we try to claim there is that actually usability involves, uh, well, uh, paying attention to the ways in which all those technologies have an impact on our behavior, how they help to shape how we act, and also how they shape the practices in which they have a role. And then we try to, to give them some kind of tool, actually the tool was designed by this PhD student, Stephen Dorrestein, who does very interesting work. And, and this tool helps designers to anticipate how technologies shape perceptions or actions or how they uh, shape uh, the ideas that people can have about uh, the world that they live in. And that can help. That can be just a plug-in, so to speak, in the design methods that designers uh, use. What, what sort of tool is this? Well, it's uh, kind it- of a... Well, it's it's it, well. We call it a, a uh, yeah. You could say some kind of. Uh, 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 I, 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 well, it's 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 a workshop that we uh, can give. Uh, it, it can take an afternoon or, a, or or a whole day, and it can be part of designing a product, but then in such a way that the designers are invited to anticipate how the product they are designing will have an impact on the experiences, the interpretations, the behavior of the users that will eventually use a product. So that can help them to anticipate what the thing they are making uh, can do more than they would just think if they would only look at the functionality of the product. And that as soon as you design, uh, uh, well, for, uh, to go back to the ultrasound example, uh, if you design that, that you are always designing more than a functional thing to look into the womb, that it will also reorganize moral responsibilities, moral perceptions, moral decisions. And as soon as you do that, you can really help designers to, uh, well, uh, 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 well, give more shape to their moral responsibility than they could without this. And then they could just ask themselves, well, is it good to design this thing or not? Is it good to design a weapon or not? But they cannot ask themselves, uh, how should I design it? How could I make sure that this technology plays uh, some kind of desirable mediating roles? Could you could you give an example of, of some technology in development or... Um in which this sort of widening of the horizon of the designers, right? Because that's what it sounds like to me that in through this workshop, 
they're encouraged to think about what they're designing in terms of how you know ordinary human beings might actually start using it and then anticipate yeah. those sorts of other uses, sort of like off-label drugs, you know, off-label, you know, prescriptions <coughs> of drugs. You know, I mean, people, pharmaceutical companies or the, you know, drug, uh, you know, FDA will approve a drug for a particular use, but of course doctors are, they can write prescriptions how they wish, right? And in a yeah. sense, um, people are... Uh, kind of like doctors in that sense, in that once you get a technology, they're going to use it for whatever they want to. And yeah. the ultrasound example is actually very interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was for, you know, finding minds. And, and here we are looking at, at uh, fetuses. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, maybe uh, the, the best example to give also comes from the book. <laughs> and also to give a bit an, an idea of what the, what's in the book. And there's a chapter uh, in which I try to give the example of the field of what they call uh, something like persuasive technologies, technologies that try to persuade people to behave in specific ways. Uh-huh. Uh, and, well, that's actually an interesting case to think about in terms of mediation because, of course, persuasive technologies were already designed to mediate. <laughs> and they were designed to have an impact on people's behavior. But the interesting thing is that as soon as you try to think about this functionality also as mediations, you can actually see much more. Let me just give one example. There's uh, an an interesting uh, design in that field, which is called the food phone, uh, which is a phone that was designed to help people with overweight uh, to... uh, to lose weight. Uh, actually, there are new versions of it now, but the one that I discussed was was a one that uh, well uses the camera in your phone. So you're supposed to make pictures of everything you eat. You MMS that to some kind of central agency. They make a calculation of the calories in it. At the same time, it has a step counter, so it uh, uh, well tries to make a calculation of how much uh, you you burned. Uh, and at the end of the day, you get a report. Um, well, of course, that's a very interesting technology, uh, uh, and uh, well, it, it could have the function that it was uh, somehow designed for. But at the same time, you can say, okay, well, what does this technology actually do in the uh, in the relation between people and their food, and what does it do between people and uh, and a social environment? Mm-hmm. It, it might also make it uh, very stressful to eat anything, or it, it puts so much pressure and 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 weight on how people experience their food that might also have an adversary effect so it's interesting if, if you have this uh, framework that i tried to sketch out in the book of how to analyze the mediating role of technologies that you can maybe also somehow predict uh, mechanisms that could actually uh, well undo the intended effects of technologies or that could come on top of it and that would have different impacts and that could help so then you could also um, take responsibility as a designer uh, in a more broad way and also taking care of the quality of the lives of people using the technologies and not only asking yourself if it's good or not or if it's safe or not. Okay. Um, and as far as the the users of technology, okay, now focusing more on the the human beings, right, the, the central yeah. agents. Um, one of the things that struck me as I was reading the book is um, there's that old, uh, you know, phrase everybody learns um, when you're when you're learning um, when you're taking a course in, in ethics or uh, moral psychology or something that um, uh, 
uh, ought implies can, right? That if you are, um, you know, morally obliged to do something, it implies that you that you can do it. You you can't be, you can't be obliged to do something that you cannot do. Um, and what technology does, um, it expands what you can do, right? And so, therefore, it seems inevitably to expand um, what we or change in some way uh, what we ought to do. Um, and I guess I was thinking, you know, is this is this cycle virtuous or or vicious? Um, <laughs> right. I mean, d- d- does technology, um, you know, sort of morally enslave us in this way by ever expanding what we can do? Yeah. Well, I think the very question that you ask uh, might be an expression of the of the humanism that I tried to overcome in the book. Okay. That was, it, 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 it starts. To, well, it seems to start from a radical separation between a sphere of humans and a sphere of technologies. Okay. And, and the question uh, if, is if technologies can enslave humans, uh, as, as if they are some kind of an alien force invading in the human sphere, uh, and we should uh, somehow set limits to that. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's important that we do not become the slaves of technology. So uh, that's actually, of course, not what I try to propagate in my book. <laughs> but I try to, uh, uh, well, to, to blur the boundaries between humans and technologies just a bit more. Because um, I think uh, well, if you try to understand what a human being is, it, it's hard to avoid uh, including technology in that. We've always been the beings uh, that we uh, are because of the technologies that we have used. I mean, also writing or uh, making clothes or weapons or tools. I mean, that, that's all that, uh, that made us human. And in that sense, um, I think the main task of ethics should not be to ask itself how we can keep the human being pure uh, from technology. But the main task should be, uh, well, how to give a good shape to uh, this human technology assembly that we've always been. And for me, uh, it has been very helpful to read uh, how Foucault actually uh, reread uh, uh, ancient ethics, Greek ethics, actually. Uh, in, in, in the last two volumes of Foucault's Ethics of Sexuality, he has a very interesting analysis of how this, uh, well, this very old ethical framework uh, worked. And that can also be very helpful to understand the ethics of technology. And what he does there is actually, um, uh, well, uh, he tries to understand um, uh, the role of power in human life, not as something alien, eh? and that's actually how Foucault is often read, eh? that power are, uh, powers are somehow, yeah, you could say, oppressing people, and we need to find ways to get around that, to do subversive actions, etc. Eh? Many people read Foucault's work on power like that. Uh, but what he does in the last two books on sexuality is actually, he says that, no, we need to include power in our understanding of the of the human being we are all we, we've always been the product of power relations and what we should do, not do is to to find ways to uh, uh, get around power but we should find good ways of shaping ourselves in interaction with power and he analyzes that or he discusses that in terms of how the ancient greek dealt with sexuality and just by discussing the question, how did ethics actually become a matter of, how did sex become a matter of ethics in the first place? Why do uh, moral about sex? Mm-hmm. And very interestingly, he describes the passions in that book as some kind of power and that's uh, being exerted upon you and that, that, that you did not choose for, but that, that 
comes over you, as it were, and that, uh, well, the core of the ancient uh, Greek ethical approaches to sexuality was not to find rules about what was somehow allowed and what was not allowed, but it was how to shape yourself as a sexual subject, so how to integrate the passions in your lives. And that meant somehow avoiding the two extremes, as it often uh, works in uh, these old ethical frameworks. So it's not denying the passions, because it would be denying a part of yourself, which could never be a good way of living your life. But would also imply not becoming their slaves, not to let the passions take over. Uh, so what it was about is how to find a way to to govern uh, those passions, to or to incorporate them in your daily lives. And then, well, that's a very interesting way to look at technology as well. Uh, the mediating powers of technologies are always there, have always been there. It would be uh, foolish, I think, to deny that. Uh, it would be equally foolish to say that uh, we should get away with uh, something like gravity or language or something. And th those are things that, well, are part of the human life, of the human condition even, maybe. So what we should do is try to understand how these uh, uh, mediations work and try to find ways uh, to shape ourselves in interaction with those mediations. Because recognizing that they are there doesn't mean that we have to blindly follow what they imply. We can shape ourselves, give shape to our mediated selves in a productive way by understanding how these mediating technologies reorganize our lives and by getting involved in that, by uh, incorporating them in specific ways into our daily lives or by getting involved in how they were designed so that they would also have different mediating effects in a, in a physical sense. I, well, I, I think... Um uh what i what i intended was was actually to to push the idea or press more on the idea of of how um how we go about doing that and uh, let me let me try to be a little bit more a little bit more specific um the more that we have tech, you know that this we're involved with our technologies um uh you know, in in the way that you that that you um, advocate, um, you know, clearly when we have things that are available, um, and we we become aware of the different ways that our decision making and our our you know the scope of our action has changed. Um, how? In what way can we be, I, su I suppose, more explicitly involved with or um, in control of or in some sense, um, uh, yeah, I suppose, in control of how those changing spheres of action and decision-making actually occur? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a that's a very important issue that you raise. Um, yeah. I think, in a sense, it has become part of well, being a citizen in a technological culture that we become somehow literate in technology as well, <laughs> which doesn't mean that we understand all physical aspects of technology, but that we also well equip uh, uh, well uh, people in our. Uh, in our world with the ability to understand how these technologies play a role in their daily lives. So uh, I think it's a matter of education. 
in a sense. And uh, but what you could already start with that uh, uh, at primary school and at high school, uh, learning uh, kids nowadays how uh, well social media helped to change their notions of friendship and intimacy, etc. I mean, there are so many examples in your daily lives of technologies that you can always use them in education. And I think that's very important because, well, the main pitfall in our thinking of technology is the concept of function. And people always think that technologies are just functional. They're instruments. They do what they were designed for. And the most interesting aspect of the philosophy of technology is that you can always show that that's well, way too shallow to understand a technology. As soon as it starts to function, then it only starts. <laughs> then all the mediations start to be there. Then technologies start to reorganize how we think, how we act. And that's what we need to learn people in this world, that technologies are just well, a very fundamental force in their lives. Now, we do that for the ideas and we educate people in uh, well the, the main ideas that have uh, popped up over the past uh, centuries or millennia uh, and, and they learn about socialism they learn about world religions etc why not teach them also about technology and how technology has an impact on how they think and how they act so is there any way to you know go about the, that sort of education or is this i mean you mentioned social media and um, oh, so the latest is the the latest iPhone version. Apparently, you can um, you can talk into it and dictate your texts. Yeah. And this is uh, this is a wonderful thing because now you don't have to type onto the tiny little keyboard. You can just dictate uh, right into the phone, and it will you know send the text message. Um, which is a terrific thing, except now people are starting to complain that how annoying it is to hear everybody around them uh, loudly dictating into their iPhones. Um, yeah. And so what's what's happening is decisions are being made. Oh, I'm going to use – I have this new technology. I'm going to now use this to dictate where once, once, you know, once yeah. upon a time I had to type – yeah. Um, and now it's having all these other effects on other people. Nowadays, people are complaining about it. Yeah. The cycle yeah. goes, we get used to it. There's a New Yorker cartoon, and then somehow it gets incorporated into our decision-making about when I'm going to text now as opposed to when I you know, did before um, and other actions, right? So our actions and decisions get shaped – by the technology, uh, but we're not do. It's it's sort of like willy nilly. It just kind of happens, yeah. and I'm just wondering if there's any sort of um, I don't know education or explicit uh, direction that can happen with this, or is it always going to yeah. be you know whatever happens, what happens? Yeah. Well, I think. Again, uh, uh, the way you perceive uh, this depends on uh, well, the basic ideas you have about the uh, human technology relations that could be there. Okay. Because um, uh, I think we are not as powerless as you might think from the account that you just gave. Okay. Uh, I mean, of course, it just happens in a sense. New technologies uh, come and go <laughs> also. Um, and uh, well, there's not much we can do to, to stop that. Right. But 
uh, it doesn't imply that we have just have to accept them uh, as they are, because very often, uh, well, we incorporate them in very specific ways in our daily lives. I mean, if you take the very example of cell phones, um, I still recall uh, the first years when we had cell phones. People really had to learn how to integrate them in social life. I mean, in the beginning, people would just answer their phone all the time. So when you were just having a conversation with somebody and he would pick up the phone because it was ringing, right? Well, that's not what people do now. People use their voicemail and they call back. Uh, in the train we have here uh, in, in Holland, people use the train a lot. And you used to have the non-smoking uh, places, uh, but now you are not allowed to smoke anywhere in the train. And now you have the non-phone call <laughs> places in the train where you just uh, where you know if you sit there, you can sit there quietly, and nobody will be making a phone call. You can just do some work. So uh, somehow we we also learned to to live with the specific ways in which cell phones uh, organize social life by adapting ourselves and also by reorganizing our social world. Of course, a cell phone is quite an innocent example, but I think it nicely shows that it's not just one-way traffic. It's not just technologies dictating us. We also learn how to integrate them in our, uh, into our lives. And we, we had to do that very often. I mean, uh, in the book, I also discuss Plato, who was very much against writing, eh? because who, who can know who will run away with your ideas, right? <laughs> or uh, we would never be able to remember anything if we can write everything on paper. Eh? It would be end of culture. Uh, of course, for us now, it's something like the beginning of culture. Everything before writing was prehistory now. And so we, we found a way to uh, incorporate writing into our existence, and it really belongs to the human being now, I think, that we can read and write. Uh, and we don't experience this as something alien anymore, but it's something that constitutes our, uh, well, our being human. So um, we're not powerless. Indeed, in a sense, technology is autonomous. Uh, of course, it's a human activity and uh, its direction can always be changed a bit, but it goes on. But the fact that it goes on doesn't mean that we just uh, have to sit and wait uh, and see what happens because we can really get involved uh, in how it will affect us. Well, there, there, the sort of global dimension to this is um, not just with uh, cell phones, for example, but you know Skype and you know various internet technologies that uh, that effectively make you know talking or communicating with anybody anywhere or practically anywhere um, as easy as you know somebody in the next room. Um, and those sorts of relationships, you know, cross borders and nationalities and everything else. Um, and those seem to be the sorts of relationships that will be kind of on deck in terms of trying to figure out how we're going to manage those things. Um, and the moral dimension there is, you know, sort of the more you know about what's going on in places that are far from you, um, that you never see, uh, but now you hear about them. Um, you know, to what extent does this expand our moral responsibilities um, now that we, you know, not only hear about things, but we're actually in, in fairly intimate, you know, relatively speaking, intimate, intimate contact with them? Yeah, I, I think it has a tremendous impact on that because, um, well, the sphere of your moral engagement really expands because of right. technologies. And, of course, it did already with the advent of radio and TV. And, of course, the Internet adds a completely new uh, new dimension to that. 
it it could even become so big that it's hard to take responsibility at all because you you wouldn't know where to start as it were (laughs) so um but it will also mean i think that uh well uh a lot of social uh uh dimensions of our lives uh, get organized in a different way. Politics gets organized in a different way as soon as we can really feel engaged with what's happening in Afghanistan or in Iraq or whatever. And so I think all those uh, new dimensions in politics also have a lot of relations with uh, all the new media that we have. At the same time, I think the example also beautifully shows that a lot of the fears about uh, new media and about technology in general, and that it would alienate people from each other, that they might be just a bit uh, uh, too big. Of course, there is always the risk of alienation because, well, you get new types of relations with new, uh, yeah, you say characteristics. But at the same time, I think uh, what Skype does or what Facebook can do is really well, expanding your uh, social sphere. And at least it enables me to stay in touch with uh, uh, friends, but also with other scientists and philosophers uh, to exchange ideas. Uh, It it really expands the world in which you live. And in that sense, it also uh, really uh, makes my whole engagement with the world much bigger and not, not smaller. So the nature of the contact is different and you you lack aspects that you would have in real life <laughs> but i'm glad uh, in some cases that i don't have to wait until i can see somebody in real life in order to have a good philosophical talk with somebody so let me another uh you raise a question uh an issue an issue in in actually towards the beginning of the book um uh, when you're talking about uh, speed bumps and using technology um, you know, sort of to do what what things that we ought to do, um, and that sort of made me think. Well, if we can get things to do what we ought to do, um, does that somehow change the nature of morality? I mean, there's a so, for example, you're supposed to give to charity, and and sometimes it's said, you know, you should give until it hurts or something like that. And this whole idea of of pain. And morality being difficult and hard and somehow, you know, involving suffering for some greater good, right? (laughs) I mean, the idea of morality itself is always attached in some sense to this idea of, of, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice, exactly. And um, if technology comes along and allows us to, you know, sort of do do the actions without much pain or with no pain, um, would that, um, would we be worse off, morally speaking, if, if, you know, acting morally were pain-free? Yeah, I think so. So that's definitely not uh, the point that I try to make in, in the book. No, I know, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but uh, it, it's very interesting that you that you bring it up. I mean, that would be something like uh, making ethics into some kind of commodity eh, that you can delegate to a machine and then we have it all solved, right? Uh, so that's that's definitely not what I want. I discussed it in the beginning of the book because it's it's part of the discussion that we had here in the Netherlands about the moralization of devices and should we also delegate some aspects of our morality to technologies because we ourselves are sometimes too weak to do it and maybe the technology should help us. Uh, so, I mean, it's an interesting idea that technologies could support us maybe in being moral. But, um, well, I, I think the whole project of the book is to move 
beyond this and to see this as a first uh, well stepping stone maybe some kind of provocation and to try to understand how actually technologies do much more than only that and that it, in, in a sense it also can be quite painful <laughs> to uh, to take responsibility for your existence in relation to those technologies i mean the experience that i described with the ultrasound example was not uh, pain free <laughs> so uh, it was acknowledging a moral significance of a technology but the decision uh, not to have uh, any information about uh, the medical condition of the child was actually quite hard for us uh, and uh, it, 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 it well it charged us uh, it appeared to charge us with a different kind of responsibility too <laughs> so um it doesn't make uh, being moral uh, uh, pain-free, not at all. Actually, I think it it adds to being moral because it makes you uh, somehow morally responsible for many more things that you can be when you do not see the moral significance of things. As soon as you see it, you become responsible for how you organize your life in interaction with the technologies. You become responsible. Uh, you you become responsible for the design of the technologies. You can also be responsible for the ways in which they are socially embedded and organized. So uh, the pain only gets bigger, I'm afraid. Well, that's that was what I was kind of getting at before when I asked about, um, you know, technology expanding what we can do. Um, and by doing that, expanding what we ought to do. And, um, and when I asked you whether this cycle is, you know, vicious or virtuous, I mean, there's a, with the ever expanding what we can, there has to be, seems to be this ever expanding what we ought. And, and, uh, yeah, but then I think at the same time, um, we, we, we only discuss in ethical terms, what's somehow problematic. I mean, there's a lot of morality that's just running, uh, as daily practice because we all agree on how it should go yeah so um uh, and i I, well i think part of what the book shows is that uh this whole agreement can also be in things so that could indeed be the cases where technologies take over or where technologies organize our socialize in such a way that we can actually all agree on it and it only becomes a matter of ethics if we feel that something might be wrong there so in a sense, if it's a vicious cycle, <laughs> then uh, maybe technologies can also help us to make it a virtuous cycle in a sense. Okay. Um, we're, we're just about out of time. So um, let me just ask you, where do you go from here with this, with, uh, with this project or, or what you have planned for your next project? Well, actually, I was very happy with you bringing up the issue of human enhancement because that's uh-huh. what I'm working on now. Okay. So, now, uh, I mean, what I did for ethics in this book and uh, how technology challenged uh, well, uh, somehow uh, the, 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 the main concept was with which we do ethics, I try to do that now for philosophical anthropology. So how do technologies challenge the ways in which we uh, understand the human being? And uh, well, if we then need to reconceptualize the human being in such a way that it includes technology, how could that then have an impact on the ethical discussions about human enhancement? So that's what I'm working on now. Actually, I just had a, 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 a little Dutch book out this year about this issue, and that will now grow into a big uh, English academic book, which I hope to be finished in, in two years or something. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, I guess uh, I'm, I'm tempted to keep asking questions, but I think we should probably start 
because it's it's been about an hour now. So um, I just wanted to thank you for giving me your time and discussing your book, Moralizing Technology, Understanding and Designing the Morality of Things. Thank You're you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We've been listening to an interview with Peter Paul Verbeek about his new book, Moralizing Technology, Understanding and Designing the Morality of Things, from the University of Chicago Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>